Welcome back to Queer and Art Podcast. I'm your host, Frankie Kraft. You're currently listening to an original song by my next guest, Jesse Jacobson. This is a really special, important episode where we discuss, of course, Jesse's artistic path, but also mental health. Mental health issues are at the forefront of a lot of conversations in this country and around the world and especially have an effect on the LGBTQ community, which is something I really wanted to highlight with this episode. Especially talking about artists and how their mental health affects their art. The community has health conditions that strongly affect us um, with prejudice and stigma, also suicide, substance abuse, the LGBTQ youth, disparities in care. There are many ways of finding a provider, and I really would suggest people go online and do some research about this. There's a website called NAMI.org where you can find support for the LGBTQ community. I'm very grateful to know someone like Jessie. I wanted to talk to her about her experience of being a therapist, working at the LGBT Center, and that whole story. So I really hope that you can enjoy today's episode, and that's about it. Thank you all. friend Jesse Jacobson who I've known for a little bit actually when's the first time we met was that two years ago uh it was the beginning of last year I think uh, January 2017 skylight theater shades of disclosure you are right why does that feel like years ago I don't know uh so much has happened since then right yeah yeah so much has happened anyways um I'm really grateful for you to be here and to talk with you I've been lucky to work with you on some other LGBT themed projects and uh it's cool for us to get to sit here and talk about some really important stuff today as well as important stuff about you and your life that I've never really got to chat with you about um so why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself because I don't want to butcher it <laughs> okay no no that's fine uh well I, I, I guess um I transitioned when I was 44 uh from male to female I should explain that right and, if you uh, want. Yeah, and, um, you know, I'm definitely trans rather than uh, bi-gender or anything like that. That's how I ident- identify. Respect them all, but that's how I identify. And um, I worked as, uh, when I 
decided to transition, I also decided to kind of start my life over. I was going to do it anyway, and, 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 and the after effects of transitioning are going to ha- make that happen, so I thought I'll do a new career. I went back to a school. I went to Antioch because uh, they have a graduate psychology program, and I already had a BA, so that's I got my MA in clinical psychology. And uh, what was great about Antioch is just at that time, and I was involved in doing this, um, they were setting up an LGBT specialization, first in the country, perhaps the only in the country, you know, still mm-hmm. not sure at this point. There may, might be, hopefully there's somewhere else. Hopefully. But, you know, Ant- Columbia one. Maybe, yeah. So, but Antioch's been known for being a very kind of liberal-minded college. Not that people of all, you know, backgrounds don't go there. I, I spoke there recently and had some interesting interactions with some of the students. But uh, the LGBTQ specialization was just an amazing innovation. And, and basically what happens is you, you could take uh, the normal, um, I guess it's six quarters worth of study, or is it semesters? They'll, they'll correct me. I don't know. Yeah, and, and uh, if you take one extra, you have a certificate as an LGBT specialization mm-hmm. graduate. So, so it really, for working in that community, it helps. I was really lucky in that when I started Antioch and I had to do my clinical training, I had met a trans woman at the now sadly defunct Queen Mary in North Hollywood. And she had been there, I think... Uh, worked in human resources for them. And just the fact that I met someone, this was around 2001, who was a trans person who was working somewhere, you know, that had a job that was important, you know, and uh, and she said, I work at the LA Gay and Lesbian Center. And I identify as trans and I identify as bisexual. So I didn't really know much about the Gay and Lesbian Center because I didn't necessarily identify that way. And... Um, you know, before I came out, it was something that it was sort of like the notion of leading a double life, I guess. But once I found out about it, I thought, you know, after looking through the book at all these clinical facilities, I was thinking, where, who the hell is going to hire me? I'm an early stages transition, mm-hmm. you know, and I hate to use this word because of the history behind it, but everybody uses it in the community, you know, in terms of passing, there was no way, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, I was just, I was wearing wigs at the time because my hair had been short when I made the decision. Uh, that'll teach you to plan ahead. Um, and uh, so, yeah, and the way I did it is is um, on January 1st, 2002, I just decided I'm going to start living full-time as a woman. I'm going to go back to school at Antioch and, and uh, get my uh, degree in clinical psychology, my, my MA, as I said. And... Um, I was going to start hormones. Mm-hmm. Now, it's probably not the plan I recommend to most people. Just pick a day and start, you know, probably just... January 1st, by yeah. the way, too. And it is the only New Year's resolution I've <laughs> ever kept, okay? Wait, I've heard you say that before. I just love yeah, it. I love it. That's my little that. tagline. I love it. I but love it is true. You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. maybe I kept a couple others at some point. But yeah. but that was the one. And, and, and uh, you know, and that worked out, out for me. I mean, it was, you know, I had a terrible time with my family and all that. But, but choosing a school to go to, it was like, you know, who's going to you know, want me there. I mean, this, we're not talking about now. We're talking about almost yeah, 20 years yeah. ago. Uh, and so I just thought, you know, okay, what the hell? I'm going to just, you know, go there. Uh, the day I went there, I had like a just fierce, like a hundred degree temperature and, and I was sick and I went and did the interview and I kind of remember it. And uh, Ian Stolberg, who was the 
the um, head of the department there uh, was like, you know, went through it and I thought, oh God, I, I flunked that. They called the next day, said we'd love you to, to do this. And, and so I did my, my internship and then and that started in September. And then by May, they asked me to work there. Uh, which was really fantastic because I thought, who's going to hire me? Mm-hmm. You know, let it, I found a clinical place to do it, but who's going to hire me? And so I started working at the center uh, with trans people, with um, gay, lesbian, bisexual, and other people, you know, straight people could come, to, you know, this was before the Affordable Health Care Act, so uh, not everybody could come there, but it wasn't, you weren't assigned there as, as, right. as being part of the health, uh, AHCA, right? Um, so it was really a fascinating experience, um, and, and I got to work with such a wide range of people from, from you know, disparate economic backgrounds and, and uh, uh, ethnic and religious and all that. So you really kind of had to learn everything. You're working with homeless people, uh, working with one person who was a multimillionaire but just wanted to come to the center because of its reputation. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, keep in mind it was still the gay and lesbian center. So probably the greatest moment for me there was a year after I started to work as an employee, as a marriage and family therapist there. Um, uh, Joni Lavick, who was the head of mental health, um, came in, uh, called me in the office and said, you know, you're, it, things are going great. We just wanted to let you know that. Do you know how much our, our trans intakes have increased since you got here? And I said, I don't know, 50 60%, you know, because, I mean, I knew more trans people were coming because they knew there was a trans therapist there. And she said to me, no, 800%. Wow. Yeah, and now I'm not saying that, taking credit, that I was such a wonderful therapist that I was going to, you know, uh, work so well with everybody. I think I did a good job. Uh, but it was just the idea that the Gay and Lesbian Center had someone trans there. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, and times have changed. Um, I went to the first staff meeting at the center, at the Renberg Theater. Uh-huh. And... Um, Afterwards, uh, Laurie Jean, you know, I had every, were there any questions? And I had a couple, couple of people ask questions. Then I raised my hand way in the back and, and I said, when do we add the T to the name? Wow. And just by sheer coincidence slash luck, later that day, I was back at the office and, and I get in the elevator and who's there is Laurie Jean. And she said, you know, I'm glad you asked that question. You know, it's a, it's a pretty expensive thing to do to change it to LGBT and, and do all that. So it's going to be a process, she says, but I'm really glad that you brought it up. And I thought, I didn't want to get fired after my first <laughs> meeting, you know. And, and she was wonderful. And, and I went on to have a really good um, relationship with her and with, with the staff there. And, and, you know, they did it. And, and that's what was so amazing to me. Because when I started there, there was, you know, a fair amount of transphobia um, that kind of permeated at least the department I was in, and I would say beyond that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to my first... Uh, they had a little party for, for new employees and stuff, or, or actually there was new interns at that point. And I went, and, and, and uh, there was one of the gay male therapists, and, and I'm just about to come around the corner, and, and he's saying to, to a couple other guys, um, oh, I hear there's a, a drag queen, you know, intern... And I came around the corner and stuck my hand out and said, hi, I'm Jesse, the transsexual therapist. <laughs> he laughed. They all laughed. And, and, uh, but it was interesting that that was the framework that they had. And uh, we, well, we'll talk about it, but there's a lot of 
things that I saw when I first got there. You know, I wasn't in a management position or anything like that, but I'm like, this, these things have to change. Mm-hmm. Not because there was any ill intent, you know, but people who assume that gay people know more about trans things than straight people, it's not really true. Mm-hmm. I'd say it is more true in 2018 than it was in 2002, but we still have a ways to go, and, and the reverse is true as well. Yeah. You know, I found out a lot of trans people, friends and people who had homophobia and, and you know, other issues with, with the LGB community. Mm-hmm. So it was fascinating. You know, it was a learning experience. Yeah, I mean, oh my gosh. Okay, so there's so much I want to talk about. Yeah. Uh, but I should. I also want to say that you are a very talented musician, and um, I also want to ask you about where that kind of started and and how you kind of, you know, went after that as well in your life. Well, that was this. It was one of those moments. I I guess I was. Um, Let's see, what would I have been? Seven years old. Mm -hmm. And I think it was February 1964. Now, I loved music before that. Um, My parents raised me on show tunes and, you know, sort of Carnival, Carousel. What's your favorite show? Music Man. Um, My favorite show. Well, you know, that probably came came later. I mean, I love West Side Story. Okay. But uh, most Sondheim... Okay, good. Yeah? Okay. Yes, you can see there's like Sondheim books, I or maybe... I can actually see it, but, but I, I know that <laughs> I'll get out of here safe now. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, uh, but, you know, uh, even, even a lot of the old ones that, that now you kind of watch and go, ooh, that's a little dicey in terms of their portrayals of people of color, or, yes. or let alone queer people, and, and all of that. So, but, you know, there's still some beautiful songs and some beautiful intentions in there. So, you know, that was what I listened to, and they played a little classical music, too. But then um, the Ed Sullivan show, uh-huh. and even though it was in black and white, it's like my world just became Technicolor the day I saw the Beatles. Mm-hmm. And um, not only because the music was so great, voices, electric guitars, and because they were so fucking sexy, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but also because at that point they hadn't grown the beards and mustaches, and they looked androgynous. Now, we would laugh today, if we, even if we look at those early pictures, go, that's androgynous. Mm-hmm. But at that time, that's what everybody said, what are these boys or girls uh-huh. and all that. And, and my thought, my seven-year-old brain said, you know, just, just came up with, uh, so boys can be girls. Mm-hmm. And it just, it just, because, I mean, I knew, even at that age, I knew they were, you know, male and, and happy being male, yet Especially if, if anybody who's listening, look at the cover, front cover of Revolver, which came out in 66. It's a wonderful illustration by Klaus Warman, besides being my favorite album, probably my favorite album cover too. But he couldn't quite get George Harrison's eyes or lips when he was drawing it, so he used actual cutouts. Mm-hmm. And you know, so it was in a, sort of an assemblage. And, oh. and he put those in, and when you look at that face, it's so queer. Uh-huh. I mean that was. I've never I guess heard this before. Yeah, my I'll show it to you. My first big sort of queer moment, like it, it, it doesn't matter. You know, you can be. I mean, of course, it took me another thirty-eight years to, to come out as being trans and to really deal with it. But culture at that point, let's say, was not exactly, mm-hmm. you know, up uh, up to date with with the notions of what trans was. The word transgender didn't exist. Um, transsexual did. Um, but that was the implication was complete surgical, and it was fascinating. Also, before the seventies, 
uh, when Christine Jorgensen came out, I mean, she got a lot of attention, but the the press didn't vilify her. I'm sure there was a few people out there that did, but but in the way that that, that happened in the interim, like when right. Renee Richards came out. Maybe it's because she wasn't beautiful in the traditional way and all that kind of stuff, but what an amazing person to mm-hmm. do that, to play on the women's tennis tour, you know, mm-hmm. as, as a trans person. Um, so my interest started that day, really, and, and it was a guitar. I think I already had a little toy guitar, uh, so it was faded. But uh, I started playing, writing songs. For me, that was the big thing. As soon as I found out they wrote their own songs. Mm-hmm. It's like not that many people, Chuck Berry had and Buddy Holly, but not that many people before that had written all their own songs or most of their own songs. Mm-hmm. And, and so that, so the guitar became an excuse to, to be cool and play, but also to um, write songs. Mm-hmm. So you know, I didn't have a natural ability at playing the guitar. I really had to just keep playing and playing. And the only, I wouldn't practice scales. I did a little of that, but it was more like I gotta learn. You know, just just keep writing songs. So I had to learn new chords. And I'd look in the you know the books that they used to publish for music. I guess they still do. You know, Beatle books. Most of it's online now. And uh, wow, what is that chord? And and, and that was like. Uh, it was like a valuable item to have then. Yeah. You know, you had cachet if you knew certain chords because there weren't, you know, buying a book, they, they were pretty expensive and, and, you know, getting guitar lessons, that was expensive stuff. I also then studied the piano. Uh, so I started forming bands as soon as I was eight years old. So it only took an, probably not even a full year for the, for the idea. Oh, my downstairs neighbor's had, you know, has a guitar too. Okay, there's, uh-huh. here's our band. And, uh, we had some, oh, I'll tell you, this is a funny story. We had some good, some really silly names, like the double plays and the Richter scales. But one day I came home, I'd been with my father, and I came home to my mother and I said, oh, we've got a new band name. And my mother said, what is it? And I said, the anal erotics. No, you didn't. Yeah, I did. And she said, who told you that, your father? And I said, yeah. Oh, my you know, God. He, he knew he was winding her up. I mean, he, it, it wasn't in a hateful way. It was just, you know, but he, that was his mind. He, you know, he had a, just really hilarious sense of humor. And you know what? It was a great name, well ahead of its time. You know, it was yeah. 10 years before the, no, 11 years, 12 years before Where'd the you Sex get, Pistols. You just heard the word anal, like, being I didn't know what it meant, yeah. yeah so I did not funny. know what it meant at that time. You know, as a therapist, I know it very well. Yeah. And as a trans person, I suppose. Sure, of course. <laughs> no, um, I kind of have a similar story, um, very quickly. When I was um, in fourth grade, I was doing this thing where I would, like, watch TV or, or watch a TV show, or, like, for instance, like I saw the the Lion King, the animated movie, and I decided to. No, it was either the Lion King or like Clueless or one of those movies. And I like wrote it all out. Like I was watching it, would pause, like write the lines, and then I would be like, "Look at this play I wrote," and like pretend it was mine and like hand it around to my parents. Anyway, there was a book that I once saw called The Queer Library, and I didn't know what. I think the book was like about a mystery in a library. And that's, like, all I knew. Uh, Side note, at the time, I was being harassed and bullied up the wazoo about being, people just calling me fag and all that kind of shit. And so, and I would complain and come home and be like, why is, what's this word, fag? Like, things like that. And, um, but I also took this book and adapted it into this play that I wanted to do with my classmates called The Queer Library. And I asked my parents if I could uh, put up this play, The Queer Library, and they were like, dude, do you know what this means? Like, The Queer Library. Anyways, 
us, you know. Back, back in the day, they probably would have thought it, it was the old meaning of queer. Yeah, you know? like weird, I guess. You know, like in the, in the 60s or 50s. No, it, it, it's funny, that, but there's certain moments like know. that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Th- that's it. It, it, it. it just triggered something. And so I started playing in bands. I luckily, luckily, uh, both my father and my stepfather, who I didn't necessarily get along with, um, nonetheless, they both had tape recorders. And so they would tape these ideas and... And I'd write songs, you know, I mean, starting at eight. But but actually, I think I wrote the first, what I would call a, a good song when I was about 10. Mm-hmm. And with the lyrics, you know, I'm talking, it was called Hallucination. So you can imagine, did I know what a hallucination was? Yeah, did I know it had anything to do with drugs? Not at that point. I did discover that later. <laughs> um, but, you know, it and it was really, I, I, I found a lot of these tapes after my father passed away. I had a few of them, but... And I was just like amazed. It's you like, still have them? Yeah, I do. Oh, cool. Yeah, you know, I have. So I have tapes when I was uh, nine, ten, fourteen, fifteen, and then you know after that I had my own tape recorders, so I was able to do a lot of stuff. But I had bands. I played in two professional bands. Um, one was a, kind of a new wave band in 1979 through 1981 called The Trend, mm-hmm. and it was just really kind of fun, intellectual pop with with an edge. The, the more we went, the sort of darker the music got, which was happening at the time as well. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, it, it's good stuff. And, and uh, I was the composer and, you know, did most of the arrangements and, and you know, was sort of like, a, I guess, a little dictator mm-hmm. about it. So when that didn't quite make it and didn't work out, we played around the whole L.A. scene and, and surrounding areas. Cool. Um, but uh, I decided I want to form a band with people who are going to contribute like I do. Like, we're, you know, I'm going to find, find three other people, maybe four other people, who can <clears throat> all create. And what happened is we, we, we got together and found a, a, a fabulous bass player who was about four years younger than us, but just amazing. Uh, worked with the same keyboardist that had been in the trend. The band's called Second Language, okay. um, which a really good name. People, there's now a, a, a band uh, called Second Language, but I think most of them actually do speak a second language, so, okay. so I don't think we'll sue them just because they probably <laughs> yeah. earned it more than we did. <laughs> but, you know, it was a good band, and we played together on and off for 16 years. And once we started improvising, I learned a whole new thing, and, and this applies to theater, this applies to any aspect of what you're going to do as an artist, because I learned, we just made stuff up on the spot, and it wasn't like masturbatory solos, not that we weren't capable of it, but we just, you know, that wasn't our thing, and we'd sort of like write, and luckily I had, you know, cassette decks, and then digital audio tape recorders, and eventually, you know, recordable CD, and everything like that, mm-hmm. but uh, so I have just hours and hours of this stuff, and normally when you go back and listen to stuff, some even some of the studio stuff, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's okay, that's, that's okay, but that stuff's amazing, Yeah. and I learned how to improvise, and I think that's really applicable in anything. You know, now that I'm involved in doing these theater pieces with Queer Wise and readings and stuff like that, uh, the other place I learned to improvise was was lecturing. Mm-hmm. Once I started working as a marriage and family therapist, I was asked, because this, everybody would come to the center. They said, do you have anyone that can speak on trans issues? And so, you know, I spoke at UCLA, USC for the, for the medical school, which is really was an interesting experience because huh. I was like, you have to treat your clients better. Yeah. You have to understand where they're coming from, stuff like that. And uh, then I went to all the facilities, D.D. Hirsch and, and all the different facilities, Tarzana Treatment, and talked to people about that kind of stuff. 
And in lecturing, I would write a sort of a little bit of an outline, but I'm much better at extemporizing than I am at like trying to memorize or or structure things. So when I spoke at um, Antioch last week to a human sexuality class, which is a course I taught twice at Antioch, and oh, yeah. now again more fascinating yeah. experiences in that. But I I really I, that's my milieu. You know, I mean, I feel I have never done like improvised. Uh, improvisation in acting uh, I mean a little bit but mm-hmm. but I, I think that might be a good thing for me you know so yeah. I'm open to new things I'm 61 and I'm still open to new things darn it yeah that's not I mean you should that's fun improv is fun yeah except I get really freaked out because it's like the pressure to be funny and I'm, sometimes I'm just like so overwhelmed by how funny everyone else is and I'm just like oh fuck it I... but doesn't everybody feel that yeah they do you gotta like just kind of jump in yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean because when I started the writing group, Queerwise, mm-hmm. um, which put on the performance of the play where we met, it started out. I started out as a group writing exercise with a few prompts, and it was for World AIDS Day. And we did a reading of it at the Skylight Theater, and they liked it so much that they said, "Can you make it into a play?" And we played there for what was I guess seven weeks. Yeah, it was a really long time. Yeah, and. Uh, that's how we met. I um, ended up, they, were, they ran for so long that a cast member couldn't continue the run. So I came in to fill his place, and that's where I met Jesse. And you were the first person I met, because I had to do, she was playing some songs in it, and I had to sing with you. And it was just, I was like, when I met you, I was like, I need to know who you are. Like, I, was, I, I clocked it so quick. I was like, okay, I'm going to know who this person is. I'm going to work with them more. Yeah, it was really great because I, I just felt an instant affinity, and and also you know you can sing, so yeah, <laughs> made, made it a lot easier than you know some of the people in the group. And it, was, <laughs> it sounded really good, and and in a way it was it was great because uh, the part that you were playing is I have to interact uh, on on a song. Yeah, uh, it was a version of "As Long as He Needs Me" from yes. Oliver. Yes, um, yes. I mean, it was a it was a. A, I guess a male or queer interpretation of As Long As He Needs Me from Oliver, which is just like the most beautiful song ever. Like I've always dreamed about singing that and I was like so stoked that that's what it was. Yeah, and, and you did it amazingly well and it was, it, well, and it was for me, it was like I had to learn all these crazy chords, which I said before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great thing, you know. And, uh, but the performances were, were so nice and, and, and Tristan, who had been doing it before, he was yes, great too. Yeah, so, so the fact that, you know, I got to meet the two of you th- just through that one connection was really great. Mm-hmm. And yeah, also meeting you first before the cast, I mean, I always felt it was a good thing if you're doing music with someone to yeah. do that, but I'm so, I'm used to, you know, rehearsals and bands and, and stuff like that. Uh, but one thing that was interesting, and I don't know if we did it while, while you were in the show, I think we did, we would do musical warm-ups. Yes, yeah. And that was like another thing. It was just sort of a spontaneous thing. Just totally. like, you know, you have to make, make up lyrics on the spot or sing your part to just this random music that I would play. Yeah. And, and it was like doing stretching exercises and, and all the other things yeah. you do for theater. And it just was a really, it really loosened me up as a player. And I think that it was really good for the group, even the ones who were thinking like you do. Oh, you know, I, I you know, I, I, I can't do this. It's you know, it's like if yeah. all these other people are good at it. But that's what I felt when I joined Queerwise. The first week I went, I heard them all read their pieces, and and they asked me to read mine, and I refused. I, and I started crying. I started crying yeah. in the group, and I said, Oh, you know, you're all too good. 
well, you know, now I have a lot more confidence. I feel like I'm really a part of the collective, and we're doing a lot of shows. We just did a reading at the One Archives. We just did uh, one at Akbar. Right, right, right. And um, there's going to be a couple more Skylight Theater shows coming up. Okay. Um, not, not a you know, ongoing show necessarily, but I think two or three performances of a, of our latest piece was, which is called Queer Woke and, and Michael Kearns is the, the director and... Yes, from our very first episode of Queer and Art, Michael Kearns. Right, and, and he's, you know, what a great guy and what he's, so much he's done for the community and for me as a writer and for everybody in that group as a writer and he's got this, like, he's just one of those people with that drive that, you know, if you could bottle it, you'd make a fortune because I could use some. Yes, I mean, if you're in the L.A. area, please check out QueerWise. They do performances and g- gatherings and really important stuff. And the, the group is filled with an eclectic um, group of people that all do totally different things, come from totally different places, and have very um, unique, interesting, empowering voices. Yeah, and Michael weaves it all together in shows, so it's just not people one after the other standing up and reading. He makes it really a group experience yeah. and, and so we've done a variety of pieces one one about sex uh, one about being queer woke you know yeah. about all the other issues that are surrounding us now immigration black lives matter all those sort of things you know we we cover that um, as you can probably assume it's a it's a very left-leaning group although there are people with differing viewpoints in there mm-hmm. um, so it, it always keeps it Interesting and honest, I suppose I would say. Yeah, which um, sort of can segue into my next kind of thing I wanted to really get into with you is, um, so I wanted to do a special episode, especially with you, about um, self-care, mental health. And um, I don't like to use this word, but I feel like it is a word that I identify with. So please don't kill me for this one, but tortured artist, I think, is um, something that is a word that comes up a lot, I think, for a lot of creative people, especially um, queer people, dating back to, let's say, like Virginia Woolf, Arthur Rimbaud. I mean, these, these queer artists who were just so tortured, you know, which is also kind of been uh, romanticized, I guess you could say, um, in being just an artist and a creative person. So you've worked um, and done incredible work for the community six years at the, at the center. I mean, really changing it in a way. And um, I would like to, to have a little discussion about um, mental health and what you have discovered and seen and maybe how we can all just kind of take a deep breath together about this topic because um, please stop me when I begin like completely rambling. But um, I think a lot about, I forgot what I was watching, but um, queer people, let's say gay people, um, have from, I guess, the beginning of time been seen, not the beginning of time, because we were probably accepted a little bit in the beginning there, right? But then there was a time when everything changed and people started seeing queerness and homosexuality as a mental, uh, a mental illness. And since then, I think we've come a long way, of course, and I, there are still places in the world where it is still seen as a mental illness. Um, but there's a stigma against the community that 
that we can't seem like we're not together, that we um, are, you know, out of our minds or crazy because we have, I, at least I'll speak personally, that that's something that I think about, you know, and, and that people think I'm, I'm sick. And um, I do think that this speaks to artists as well because we're still humans, right? And uh, we still deal with that. And I also like to think that that is a, that energy of, of um, thinking that there is something wrong with you could be productive and could be used to either share your story to help someone or to just exercise that out of yourself to, to, to have that therapeutic experience of moving through something to move on with your life and, you know, live. So where do we begin here? You know? <laughs> well, I mean, I, th- I think it's good to begin with where you began is, is queer artist as a notion, um, a tortured artist. You know, those, those things are, you know, not <laughs> mutually exclusive. And I think that any artist can be tortured. And remember that quite often artists are looked at in the same way as queer people. The cleverness, the difference, the ability to think differently throughout history at different points, especially in more repressive regime, regimes, have always you know, uh, come down hard on artists of any sort. Anyone who does not you know, just do the port- nice portrait of the king or, or whatever it may be. So I think it, it's a trait that's common to a lot of artists. Certainly, I think when you're talking about queer artists, artists of color, um, you know, artists from different backgrounds, you're going to get a lot more external torture, maybe. Sure. A lot of the torture that we have is sort of internal torture, but it's all related to what's coming back at us, what we're hearing in the culture, that we're being called fag, or, or, or you know, I mean, I think about being bullied in high school and all that kind of stuff. And, and even if they didn't specifically know that, that, that I was trans, that, or that, you know, and, but the words fag and all that kind of stuff, yeah. you know, I think that people just have a hard time with people that are different. And when you embrace that differentness, I think that's when you really start to get into trouble with psychological issues from the outside. Yeah. From people, you know, because they're not comfortable. I mean, here you are, you're an articulate artist, right? Uh, a writer, a, a painter, a musician, or whatever. And everybody just assumes, oh, well, you know, they see those things like, oh, you think you're better than me. Mm-hmm. And there's a huge anti intellectualism and anti artistry in the United States right now. Look what they're decimating the, you know, the, the art grants and, and all that kind of stuff. And you've got, you know, lunatics in power who are who are trying to take every element every aspect of that they can away we won't recognize you know lgbt month we won't we won't recognize uh uh, minorities of, of any sort and so it's it's an authoritative thing i think to some extent so are queer people inherently more likely to be tortured? I'm going to say yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, I never generalize in the sense that that's just true across the board because there's a lot of, you know, messed up straight people. And, and, sure. uh, and of course, you know, probably there's a percentage of those straight people who were trans or gay and just never could deal with it. Yeah. And so we don't identify them as being queer artists, 
but certainly a lot of what they wrote and a lot of what they conveyed is as queer as anything a lot of queer people have written. So, and, but there again is the, you know, the, it's, um, it's institutional, it's, uh, you know, endemic in, in this society. I mean, there are other societies where LGBT people were more accepted, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and I'm probably going to get it wrong here, but I'm going to say that I think it's the like. Lakota Sioux people who had like 19 different genders. Somebody's going to yes, correct, correct me on this. this. Yeah. yeah. And, and there's, there's other societies, you know, that are more matriarchal, uh, you know, a patriarchal society is really difficult and, uh, it's hard for both trans men and trans women for trans women, you know, and artists to, to come out They're They're giving up their privilege. You know, there's, they're giving up their male privilege. They're giving up their heterosexual privilege for, for trans men, they're they're suddenly having to confront this whole new level of unintended privilege and undeserved mm. privilege, um, and so uh, I think you know I don't want again don't want to make any generalizations, but but going both ways is such a difficult thing, and and the ex- expression of that in art and and well, you know all the arts really is uh, something that is going to appeal to an incredible amount of people, probably more than people realized, you know. I mean, David Bowie kind of took in everything. You know, he saw Jane County, a trans woman performer. He, you know, he saw, uh, who was involved with Warhol's projects and right. all that. And he saw, you know, all sorts of kind of gender-bending theater and and uh, non-rock music and stuff around. And he kind of took all that on. And, you know, he was a bit of a... Uh, besides being a chameleon, he was—he also was just good at absorbing everything around him. And he, you know, I mean, the Velvet Underground were writing songs about trans women, right. Lady Godiva's surgery, Candy says, yes. you know, about Candy Darling, yes. and and uh, and he kind of took that and and but presented it in a way. And you know, all the glam artists did that, but I think that that Bowie and Roxy Music were really kind of the the cutting edge of that. And, and also because I think there was a level of of dipping his toes in bisexual and gay, yeah. queer, uh, in general activities, and, and trans. I mean, he appeared in, you know, in a dress on the cover of the uh, English version of... Didn't make it to America that way, but, uh-huh. you know, looking like Lauren Bacall. And it was a, just one of those amazing moments. I saw that, you know, I didn't know much about Bowie. I'd heard maybe a song on the radio. And, you know, so I bought Ziggy Stardust, but when I saw the, the original cover of, I think it's called Man of Words, Man of Music, whatever, uh, I was like, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, this is incredible. Yeah. And that whole time, glam and glitter and all that was, a, was a, you know, there was your art, was all, there was so much queer, queerness in it. And, and it had happened before. And, you know, like I say, I, I got it in 66 seeing the Beatles. I, I don't think any of them who was even bisexual, but it didn't matter. I saw Jim Morrison, again, before the beard and the mustache. Not that that can't be something that, you know, that includes gender fluidity, but at my young age, I didn't, you know, it was one or the other. Mm-hmm. Now I'm much more sophisticated in my understanding of all yeah. that. But Jim Morrison, I mean, you know, men loved him as much as women. He was just a sex icon. And, and you know, it, it, it destroyed him. You know, I think to some extent, just just that unreserved outpouring. But of course, also, he was someone who was prosecuted for his art. Yeah. You know, they say he exposed himself on stage in Miami. Not a single person there 
has any evidence or any memory of him doing that. Yet that, you know, didn't destroy his career, but it certainly put him in a major downward spiral. You know, doing massive amounts of alcohol and drugs probably didn't help him either. But a lot of those artists, you know, to me, that, that's what was so fascinating about them. There was, there was a, you know, no matter how straight they were, they were embracing the queer. And that's the first time that I saw that in mainstream right. pop and rock culture. It's not that there weren't, you know, gay artists that, that existed before then and artists that people generally knew, but didn't, they didn't really talk about it. Um, and, you know, certainly Lou Reed lived with a trans woman for a year or two, and, and so, you know, there, there were a lot of what we might categorize as, as bisexual, but, but, you know, I think things were so far apart, and then it sort of became a mix of things. And I think anybody doing that, you know, all those bands, even a band, you know, male band like Slade that came out in the 70s, they got a lot of shit for, you know, wearing the platform boots and the glitter on their face and the long hair and all that kind of stuff. So it's it, it maybe it gave them a little hint of it's what drag. it's like. Yeah. yeah, it was kind of like drag, yeah. exactly. And, uh, you know, and a lot of what, what Bowie did too. But I think that it was, it, it allowed people of my generation. I was born in 56, so I was, you know, 16 when I first found Bowie. And it was just like an amazing thing. Wait, people can do this? You know, this this can happen? But I think in terms of general mental health, there's not acceptance. Yeah. And, you know, homosexuality uh, was in the DSM until I think 74. Yeah. Again, something, or something like that. Yeah, correct me on the year. Which is, was a remarkable thing, which means that it's a disorder, which means that it's considered, you know, by a lot of people who don't distinguish between disorder and disease, that it's like, yeah, it's you're sick. Yeah. Um, so they got rid of that then, but it took them until the last version of the DSM in the last couple of years, the DSM-5, where they finally got rid of what was called gender identity disorder. Right. Uh, now there's a therapist... 2005, named, you just said? Uh, no, no, just in the last couple of years. Oh, okay. Just in the last couple oh, of years. Oh, wow. So, you know, it's like we, we didn't have our Stonewall, even though there was a lot of trans... Sure people at Stonewall, yeah. probably a lot of the people who started the whole thing, you know, we didn't really, that, that, for me, that's the sort of moment <clears throat> the DSM-5 says has changed it to gender dysphoria, which is the medical term. Mm-hmm. I'll go into more detail about that, but I think that, you know, gender identity disorder, that's pretty bad, yeah. you know, GID, and I, I saw a lot of clients, hundreds of trans clients during my years at the center and, and my little time working uh, in private practice after that, and, uh, I didn't know any of them that had gender identity disorder. Mm-hmm. There's a therapist named Christine Milrod who came up with what they could have, should have called it. It's a great term, and I want to give her full credit on this. She said it's OPD. Mm-hmm. Instead of GID, it's OPD. So it's not gender identity disorder. It's other people's disorder. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that's genius. Yeah. And I think that, that sort of made me, you know, so I use that all the time, credited. Uh-huh. But, but I think it's important that people get the notion it has nothing to do with what's going on in us. Of course... We're troubled. We're depressed. We're dealing with anxiety. I call it tranxiety. <laughs> you know, it's a certain level of awareness usually uh, that you're the only trans person in a room. Yeah. That yeah. happens every day of my life. Now, I'm married to another trans woman, so it happens less than it used to. Yeah. But, you know, that, that is so, so and, and, you know, people of color have to deal with this. Uh, all, there's all sorts of other, other ways of looking at that. And, and, and so, yes, these people can be more tortured both internally because they've taken on society's dictates 
but also externally because, you know, I wrote the song that you used in your piece, What Mm -hmm. It's Like to Be Normal. Can you tell me what it's uh, like to be normal, to see oneself reflected on in TV, movies, film, or uh, uh, billboards, TV, film. And, uh, you know, the, the whole song's about that. And for me, that's like, it's like, what is normal? Normal is a crazy thing. You know, normal is, is you know, gun-toting, Bible-thumping, craziness, you right. know. And, and I worked with a lot of people of different religions in therapy, but I find it fascinating that, that a lot of the criticism that comes for the LGBTQ community is from people who believe in men in the skies and, and you know, uh, magic, we call it magical thinking in therapy. So if they're going to have a gender identity disorder or, or being queer is, is, a, is, back in the day, was a disorder, then how about religious belief disorder? And I'm not trying, meaning, I'm, I'm meaning it to be provocative, play devil's advocate no, liter- you, literally here. I like that. But, I mean. but it's like, well, that's magical thinking. If you look in the DSM and you look, you talk to any psychiatrist, psychologist, therapist, these are all magical thinking that, that, you know, an unseen being controls us, that we hear voices from God, right. all that kind of stuff. So these are the people questioning that we're innately queer or we're innately trans. And, and you realize what, that's insanity. That's not normal. Yeah. That, that, that's, you know, I t- fully support people in being religious and believing in their religions. We live in a country where there is a clearly defined separation of church and state. So for those people to have any influence on policy outside of their individual voting is a crime. Yeah. It's, you know, that is, to me, it's treasonous if you're allowing churches now, which they're talking about doing and scrapping the Johnson Amendment and all that, and they're able to actively campaign for a president, that's fine. Take away their tax-free status. Yeah. Because it's no longer a separation of church and state when that happens. And we've already gone so far in that direction that as an atheist, somebody like me, right. you know, we're never, you know, well, how many atheists are going to get elected? How many have been elected? Handful in the entire history of this country. None? Yeah. Well, there are probably are a few. Probably a few of the founding fathers were, they wouldn't come out and say that. They call themselves theists or this or that. But if you really study the history, they don't believe in any of that stuff. Yeah. They may not. They they may have certain aspects of spirituality and, and religion that appeal to them, but they they didn't believe that there was a divine order. That's why they created the country. Hello, you know, it's a, a basic truth. So the rest of us who are queer, LGBTQ, II, all those things, you know, how do we fit into that? You're you're saying this is not normal. I mean, people forget that. Approximately one out of every 1,666, it's an easy number to remember, one out of every 1,666 people are born intersex. Uh So folks, your bipolar notion of male and female isn't real. Mm -hmm. There's stuff in between, all sorts of stuff in between. Klinefelters, all these different uh, possibilities. So even sex is not bipolar. Uh, gender is fluid. It depends on the society. It's it's completely fluid from person to person. So we're all normal. Mm-hmm. We're all normal. You know, if you if you look right in the middle of what everybody is, that's an average. So the average norm does that make it normal? I don't think that's what people mean by normal. Yeah. I think by normal, to me, would be some degree of rationality. Uh, it doesn't mean you can't have beliefs or, or all of that, but, but you know, you're kind of balanced in the middle. You respect that everybody's different. Oh, you know, uh, there's, there's Christian people who believe this. There's Muslim people who believe this. The problem is, is when it comes into the public and, and 
And, you know, as artists, that's what a lot of us are writing about. That's what I'm rebelling against when I write songs. I'm writing about my history of being trans, uh, uh, being bisexual, um, you know, and I write in a group called Queerwise, so I've taken on the identification of, of queer as well. And uh, all of that, you know, each one of those is, is a blow to your reputation in, 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 you know, the privileged society, when you're talking about male privilege, heterosexual privilege, privilege, Christian privilege in this country. It'll be different in Muslim countries or, sure. or Hindu uh, com- countries. But, um, and, and so we're trying to find our place. We're, we're being told we're the wrong, ones in the wrong, even though most of the scientific evidence that's coming up pretty much shows that, that you are innately gay or trans. Mm-hmm. They've never done a lot of testing on this in the past, but now that there's such... It's not that the population of queer people has increased. It's that their visibility has increased. People are not so afraid to come out. Right. I mean, I grew up in New York and Los Angeles, so how hard was it for me? It was hard, but I don't think, you know, being in Kansas or Alabama, it's going to be so easy. No. You know, and, um, and you know, even parts of California. So that's what we're rebelling against. And so we have to be in opposition to be artists. I mean, we could just toe the line and sing, you know, like, but look at, I mean, look at from even back in the 50s, Little Richard. Yeah. And uh, Escovera, who was the one who influenced Little Richard a lot in the, with the extreme hair and all that kind of stuff. I mean, think how bold that was. Yeah. I mean, just a flamboyantly gay man who had done drag and, you know, before his, his rock and roll years and all that, out there singing songs, you know, like... Um, Tutti Fruity. Tutti Fruity and, <laughs> and uh, Long Tall Sally. Yeah. Bald-headed Sally. Yeah. That's one of the lines in it. You know, it's about, it's about a trans person, maybe right. a transvestite, whatever. Also, in the, in the DSM, they have what's called transvestic fet, uh, fetishism, right, or fetish. Uh, that, that's the, another uh, description, another disorder. And it's like, why is that a problem? Who cares what people wear? Is it interfering with your day-to-day life? Yeah, but again, that's because other people can't handle it. Mm-hmm. So it's not you. It's not your problem. You know, you're, you're, that's how you like to. And, and with gen, you know, now with gender fluidity and all that stuff, I'm surprised that that remains in the DSM. Yeah. And that's another thing that people you know, are fighting about. And then even for people like me who came up and are so progressive and stuff, when I started seeing you know, trans women and, 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 you know, with beards and mustaches and all that stuff, that threw me. I had to, you know, we all have to learn to adjust. I was like, oh my gosh, it's like, you know, gender, I'm always saying gender's fluid, but like recognize the fact gender's fluid. Sure, some people are doing things for fashion or style, but so what? Even that, it's like, that's how it becomes part of the norm. Yeah. So, so you know, now... It's a, I yeah. know what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, there's, I, I mean... I see um, people who live in, um, who exist in a married, uh, they're both cisgendered, uh, they don't maybe identify as that, but they're cisgendered um, heterosexual couples who say that they're, and I, or I, they identify as pansexual or gender fluid, but yet they walk around visibly, you know, presenting as a man and a woman, um, which I'm cool with. I'm cool with just like any 
um, you know, conversation being had where people are putting their foot down and saying, no, we're not straight people. We're this or we're queer. Great. But it is like I do something does come up about it. It's the A word. Appropriation. Yeah. You know, um, we appropriate in, in mainstream white culture people of color and, 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 you know, their movements and their words. I mean, we're sh- calling our show Queer Woke. It's in, in complete respect to that. But, you know, we sort of ask people beforehand, is that is that okay? Yeah. Um, and, uh, I mean, the whole the group has got some diversity in it, but that's, you know, but e- even so, it's like, that's not my term, you know. I don't, and my, my piece in it is actually a poem about appropriating. Oh, uh, so appropriating the, the queer community, I mean, I saw that start in, I'm sure it started before my observation, you know, being of an age, was that it started during that, that 70s, you know, and, and, and all of a sudden people who weren't queer and weren't really flamboyant by nature were up, were up there doing it. And you're thinking, well, on the one hand, it's, it's putting this out there. It's like saying this is okay. On the other hand, it's like tourism, mm-hmm. you know, and even even Bowie to some extent, although I think he was genuinely bisexual, uh, you know, there's a, there's an element of, of, of tourism that was in there, you know. But and choosing, yeah. you know, like... Yeah, and, and the people who reacted when, when you say, you know, well, you're cisgender, they're saying, no, we're not. But the medical, you know, the definition of that just means, you know, somebody who's comfortable with their, you know, assigned, and we're going to use the word assigned very specifically... Uh, sex or gender, sure, yeah. right? And uh, so it's not an insult, but it's funny that people take it that way. Like, well, yeah, you don't get to call me cisgender. It's like, well, I just, I okay, I just, you're not transgender. There's sure. I mean, there's like this, this there's this feeling of um, like clocking in and clocking out of exactly. your queerness, and yeah. and I uh, I don't get, I don't. It's not that I want to or get to clock out of my queerness. I go out into the world this way and I go back and I sleep in my bed with my boyfriend that way. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know what these, you know... Straight acting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I hate those terms. But you know what they mean. And and, and in a sense, it goes both ways, too. Yeah, for but, sure. But, you know, you understand why people who are from the repressed minority are trying to, to, to get through to, to su- succeed in the world. I mean, it's happening... It's, Fortunately, there's much less of that now, but back then you weren't out and gay and worked and you especially weren't out and trans and worked, you know, like again at the center I started uh, and and it was that funny, I guess this was actually the same guy who said to me, he said, well, you know, I don't understand, you know, you you like to be with with, uh, men and, you, you know, but you're you're too afraid to come out as gay, so you're trans. Right. And, you know, of course I'm like, okay, let me let me try let me reverse that on you. Okay, you act like a woman. You talk like a woman. You you use the language, you do all that kind of stuff. Aren't you just afraid to be trans? Mm-hmm. You know, and he got it. You know, yeah. so we so we had a laugh about it, but it's kind of like none of that is true. You yeah. know, it's just such a nonsensical way of looking at things. The the the, the some of the real differences uh, you know, for people who are trans is that once you've gone through the surgeries and done all that kind of stuff, there is no dropping in or out. It doesn't happen any longer. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and then again, we talk about that horrible word passing, which comes from uh, you know the black community in the sense of back in the day, if you passed as white, 
you got better jobs and all that kind of stuff. It's a horrible, horrible thing. And the idea of passing successfully as a woman or passing passing successfully as a man, that means you're not really that thing, mm. passing. It's just such bullshit, and and it, and it's there's such detrimental terms, and they get used by all of us, you know. And and we need, you know, we're developing new language, and probably a lot of people think we're doing that too fast, but um, and you know, there's the uh, pronouns when you get into all that kind of stuff. There's so much. I mean, wow, yeah, you're bringing up a lot of new things that I've never really thought about that that deal with the. Um, the labeling or like the associating of who you are as a queer person. I mean, passing, I feel like you can add that to saying like, I am a passing cisgender <laughs> queer, you know, like you could just put that in front of all of them now too, because that's such an important conversation to be had with it within this because, uh, because that's all that is. Because I think that we spend a lot of time trying to like define and understand each of these labels when at the end of the day, that's kind of going against the whole like rock and roll part of being queer is that like it, that it, it it's just in your, it's what you're uh, wanting it to be. You know what I mean? Exactly. And, and you know, reacting can always be a dangerous thing, you yeah. know, and, and getting back into sort of the, the artistic element of it. So we can express things that are in mainstream music. We can do that. I mean, queer people wrote so much of, you know, theater pieces and so much, and rock music too. They're, yeah. they're all over the place. As we were talking, I was thinking about maybe doing a little exercise. And if you hate this idea, you can like, just tell me, please, no, let's not do this. But since you spend so much time as a psychiatrist, I didn't mess that up, right? Uh, marriage and family therapist. Marriage and family therapist. Okay. Well, I'm sh- I think that you can help me a little bit with okay. this. Um, Speaking to artists, um, queer artists, um, telling a little personal story now. I, when I was, um, I always knew when I was younger that I wanted to be an actor or a performer. And then, you know, as a couple years went on, I started to have fun writing things, directing things, just making stuff. And I never felt inhibited by what, I was. I always was very loud and crazy. And then as I became a teenager, it really started to change. I wouldn't accept my queerness. I would say I was in the closet, even though that time was very shortly spent in the closet. I, but the reason was I knew, I knew I would be accepted by my family, and I knew that I would be accepted by my family, but I didn't feel like I would be accepted by the art world or the... Um, as an actor, I, I wanted to play the leading man, you know, and, and I thought, oh, if I'm really who I am, they're not going to, even if I was the best actor in the room, they'll never believe me for that. And so that really started to create a lot of anxiety for me. And that anxiety led me to act out in certain ways because I my personal story is turning into a long story, but you know what? Here we go. Um, I'm going to, you're my therapist right now. Uh, so then that, uh, really started. And this is just me reflecting as I've gotten older, realizing what was going on. That experience of that anxiety started to make me want to party. You know, I wanted to then start it, Okay. So during the day when I was working so hard on all of these things, 
because of all the pressures and anxieties that were building during the day, I would let loose at night or doing experimenting with drugs or alcohol or whatever. And it, it did kind of lead into my young adult life as I then got into school and turned 18, moved to New York and went to theater school, a very intense theater school, and really became just more educated about all the other roles that I didn't think I was going to be able to play. Um, and the competition that started to build in my head with other people in the world, you know, thinking, how am I going to be better than this person who I can dance around, sing around, act around, but they look the part, they are the part, and they're going to get the part, and I'm going to be here really frustrated about it. Um, I noticed that my anxiety became crippling to the point when I couldn't even audition anymore, where I would be sent out on major Broadway auditions or whatever, and I would just freeze. I wouldn't remember my lyrics. I wouldn't remember anything. I just, all I could see were these people across the table judging me. And because I, I was nervous to, you know, flip, sit, switch my hips, you know, or I was nervous to accidentally use a syllabant S in, in a lyric or whatever, things like that. Um, and I really had a problem with talking about this. I mean, I didn't know who to talk to. I couldn't, I felt like my parents didn't know how to hear it because, well, you know, they're like, suck it up, kid. This is your life. This is what you wanted to do your whole life. And they may not have had the answers. Yeah, they may not have had the answers. They didn't have to deal with that, so how yeah. would they actually know that? Exactly. But that was my safety, you know, and I didn't want to, I, I, I didn't want to show my weakness to my representation, like my agents or managers. I didn't want to talk about it with my friends because I wanted them to think I was on top of it and I, I was, you know, I was getting these auditions that they wished that they could get and yet I was, like, blowing them terribly. I went to this place for specifically created for actors that they offer uh, therapy services for or counseling for and that made my anxiety worse. Um, I just felt like they didn't offer me um, the queer perspective that I was coming from, uh, uh, saying, you know, I feel like, how am I gonna do this? I'm, do I just say, forget it? Do I wait around for these gay roles? You know, who do I go to to talk to about this? And, and even the gay roles, you're not, or in, in, in case my community, the trans roles, you're not even gonna get them. They're gonna, they're gonna give them to white hat men. Oh, I should have said that too. That was the other big problem I was having because I was having to watch these Tony Awards giving out to these straight actors thinking, you know, like, so where am I going to succeed here? Am I wasting my life and time? Should I just fucking kill myself here? Those were actually thoughts that I had. And I would venture to guess that a lot of other actors either have completely identified with these feelings or really pushing these feelings down and rising above it in some heroic way that I have not yet discovered. Um, so I'm curious about how you would have a dialogue with someone like me at that, or me right now, you know? Because I, I, I feel like there are, and I, I yeah, I'm, um, I'm talking specifically right now about like acting, but I think that there's, there are um, singers I know, there are, um, you know, artists in general. So 
What do you, what's your I mean, you know, as an individual, I experienced it myself, you know, because of my transition, which, which again happened in 2002, and, and, and I'm not the sort of artist where I'm going to transition and then sing as I did when I was living as a male. For me, that just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. I don't judge anybody else who does that. I, I think, you know, is it Laura Jane Grace? You know, I think, I think it's great that people can do that. For me, though, so I realized I had to retrain my voice. I had to find the self-confidence within myself to be able to sing as a woman. Now, I don't have any, you know, set, cliché definition of what a woman is, but what it meant to me. I'm just using it in my own okay. little, little perspective. And I think that it's, it's such a common feeling of what you're expressing. The, the, you know, the, the, not only you getting the lack of, love, of opportunities, but you also have the self-critical voices inside you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I dealt with so many people who were artists and queer at the center. So I, I think the one thing is that you have to realize that you have to accept that you're going to have that self-critical voice. But you have to sort of, it's going to happen, you're going to hear these things in your head, but you also want to just be able to sort of say, okay, I hear you and find a way to move that aside. This is, none of this is easy. <clears throat> it's an ongoing process. I still deal with it. I, de- I dealt with it the entire time as a therapist. My first session, I thought, what the hell am I going to do with this person? This woman walks in. She's a trans person. She talked for 50 minutes, and I was like, oh, wow, okay, it's not that hard. <laughs> you know, and I, but I was worried because um, you know, I thought, well, what if she says, how long have you been doing this? You know, I was like, okay, just five minutes <laughs> but 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 it's in terms of being an artist and, and and getting through those things I mean obviously the external results help but you also you have to find sort of sort of find a way to to build your own confidence and I think there's a lot more resources than there were certainly back in the day for me and and you know when you were starting out years ago yeah and and I think that that most therapy is not geared towards anything but what they consider that sort of tiny little area of, you know, heterosexual, cisgender, white people, you know, and, and in working with the variety of people that I was, the, the sheer diversity of people I was able to work with, not everything works for every person because you're dealing, you're dealing with every person has insecurities. Every person may feel at times that they're not worthy. So much of that has to do with family background. And even if you have a loving family, sort of struggling with your own queer issues. I mean, I like what you said in the sense that, that you weren't in the closet for a long time. I, I'd say that it wasn't even a closet. It was more of like a changing room. Yeah. And you changed. Yeah, and, and you I came out. <laughs> you know, you came out. I don't know why that occurred to me. Yes. But, but I think that, you know, we can do self-affirmations. We can, but, but something like I started uh, with the center, the first trans women's group there. And just walking in that room, with ten, eight, uh, seven other people who are trans is immediately a normalization process. And this is where I mean normal in a good way. It's your normal life. This is who you are. It's your experience. You have to filter out what the rest of the world is projecting upon you. It's all about projection. Mm -hmm. And we absorb that because it's systemic. But that's not who we are. We, yes, we are the people that have absorbed this, and now we have to work that out, get beyond that. And, you know, things like, I mean, do all queer people have some level of PTSD, possibly? 
you know, not all, but I'm sure that... Something traumatic. Yes, it is very traumatic because you're being called fag at school. You're being, you know, some people are beaten, some people are attacked. And when I transitioned, I've been very lucky in the sense that I haven't been physically assaulted, but I almost was once. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I got out of it, but it was, it was a scary moment. Um, but I think that if you have people that can support you and who you are, I'm not saying you have to cut out all the other people of your life, but if you can find that family's not always just your birth family. Now, you may have great relationships with them, but they can't help you in that area because they don't understand it. Mm-hmm. It may not even mean that they judge it. It may be nothing negative in that. But the fact is you're going to have to find those resources elsewhere. And that's why the center, you know, it was great that they got a trans therapist in there because there was the word going around when I first heard about the, the Gay and Lesbian Center that they weren't trans-friendly. Now, I know that wasn't their intention to not be trans-friendly, but they just didn't know about it. Mm-hmm. You get a couple trans therapists in there. You get a, you know, a trans men's group that, um, that was run by Daniel Gould. You, you, you get a trans women's group, and you're in your community. You've got other support. You're writing your own pieces. In your case, you're, you're, you, know, you have to express all that stuff. You have to get it out. So that's cathartic. Yeah. You know, that's therapy in and of itself. And when I'm doing therapy with people, I'm like, write down all the stuff you're talking about right now. Write down your experiences, even write down the trauma that came from those experiences, because the more you deal with it, the more you talk about it, the more you get it out of your system. Mm-hmm. You know, find ways and people that are going to affirm who you are, not, you know, butt kissers who are going to say, oh, Frankie, everything you do is so wonderful. Right. No, you've got to find people who really understand what you're doing and will be, are willing to be critical in a constructive way. You know, I mean, for me, writing as a, as a trans writer, you know, having Michael Kearns um, as, as the leader of Queer Wise, you know, helps me feel, gather strength in, in, in my trusting my own instincts and my own experience, too. Um, Daryl Larson, who I mentioned, who's another, you know, icon in the, in the uh, queer field, uh, writer, director, actor, producer... Uh, he wants me to do a one-woman show. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, and I'm like, absolutely not. You know, it's like, <laughs> I'm not doing that. It's like, I, what I'm exposing everything to the world is like, he says, yeah, you have, you know, a bunch of song, have songs, and then, you know, bits in between. I said, I can't memorize. Uh, you know, I, I'm too embarrassed. I don't sing enough like a woman. You know, I've got all those thoughts going around in my head. But you know what? For the opportunity to work, to work with Daryl, I'm going to figure out a way to, to make that happen. Yes. Right now, I'm mired in it. So if I'd go talk to my therapist and say, how do I get out of this hole? You know, because it's like, I don't believe I can do it. I know I can write the songs. Mm-hmm. I know I can write. I now, doing Queer Wise for the last couple of years, I know that I can write the material. But me getting up there and being you know, focused on the stage, or even if there was one or two other people, whatever it might be, it's like, no way. Yeah. So I have to find not just that. You know, I found it in him you know, in Daryl or Michael or these people who are, who are so supportive of other people in the group. But that's what you have to do. You have to get yourself in with those people. You have to deal with these issues, and you have to deal with, with them with someone who's qualified, someone who has taken that extra quarter at, you know, or semester at Antioch mm-hmm. uh, in the LGBT specialization. I'm not saying that non-LGBTQ people can't do therapy for other people, but they better have studied because like when I used to go to the center 
if I'd get a, a Korean-American client in, I'd go read about it. I'd go study about it. Because, like, one client came in, and, and, and she was talking about enmeshment in her family. And I was well-versed enough on my own volition to then say to her, would you say, because she was a, a second-generation uh, American. Okay. And I was, so so I'm, I said, was this enmeshment in the sense of how that happens in the community a lot with families, or is it your particular family? And she was like, it's my particular family mm -hmm. beyond the other. You know, so to be able for people to ask questions about your queerness, about, about the experiences that you went through, even the notion of being in the closet. I mean, maybe everybody has a secret, but they, they aren't as, you know, lethal as that. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I, I think, I think it's, it's going to be the combination of finding the right kind of therapy, mm -hmm. finding a supportive community, being in the community, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, obviously good relationships are going to help that, but a lot of people go through abusive relationships because they think they don't deserve better. And you have to learn from the bad relationship uh, how to create the good relationship. That's a start, anyway. Yeah, I mean, um, one thing that, I mean, I've actively had to do and, and go after and, and force myself in some ways to create are these relationships. I mean, I am definitely like this podcast might seem <clears throat> excuse me might seem like i'm like kind of extroverted talking to all these people who are cool and great but it's it this is like a big step for me in terms of like getting myself out there with the community and discussing these kinds of things because it's lonely and isolating um just like that car driving by me and i i mean it's it's very like tough so I imagine I don't know who listens to this podcast but I can imagine that there is someone out there going but wait I don't have any relationships I'm scared of putting myself out there that way I like to listen to your podcast or I like to um you know watch this tv show or look on Instagram but I don't have a group of people I don't have a support unit I have ideas about this but I wonder what you what else you would say about that well well first of all we know all the terrible things about about mass media and the internet and all that kind of stuff but here's the great thing this is the great thing your voice gets out there and it can be heard and it's not only who's listening now but who will listen to yeah. this and who will benefit from this experience and so right there is is therapy in action your therapy by be willing to t being willing to talk about these things, to engage with other people who've had different experiences and who can, you know, not necessarily give you advice, but who can tell you what they've been through so that, so that you learn. Therapy isn't about giving advice. Yeah. Therapy is about hearing the person, reflecting back to them what they've said and helping them to, uh, you know, discover a way to get to fulfill the goals they want to feel, fulfill on one level and also become the person that they want, want to become. And there's no by numbers and there's no easy way to do it. I mean, I've had, you know, fascinating ex experiences with people. I've worked, I've worked with trans women where we've done what's called an empty chair technique where they sit in the other chair and become either another person in their family or, or their partner or whatever. I've had them done it, do right. it with their genitalia and have a conversation. And I've had people just start crying in the moment because they realize the struggle, you know, am I going to have surgery? Am I not going to have surgery or whatever the case may be? Or what, what are my problems with, you know, so it, it's, it's amazing how creative you can be in doing this and in 
doing podcasts and talking to different people and also sharing your truths. It's really important that you keep talking about that stuff because it's, uh, and this is, and there's going to be those people out there who are going to feel like you do or like I do. And they're going to say, wow, I just learned something. And, yeah. and you know, that, that bit that Frankie shared about himself was exactly how I felt. And so he got through it. That means I can get through it. Yeah. Or they'll hear something in what our what our dialogue is, and and will say, here's here's a way to start that out. You know, seek out that 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 clinic in your town that's LGBT friendly. Find out. Just look on. That's what the internet's great for. You're going to find all the trans friendly or, or gay friendly or you know pansexual friendly, whatever it may be, uh, agender friendly. Yeah. And, and they're all out there. You know, there's a lot of crap out there, but. As long as you're dealing with licensed professionals and people who've been through the training, and there's plenty of, you know, again, non-LGBTQ people who are still well-versed in it and are, are quite capable of dealing with it. I've seen them. You know, even my therapist who didn't have a specific training, he learned pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not your responsibility to go see your therapist and educate them, but there's, you know, you're educating them whether you know it or not, even if it's not about being queer. It's about here's a whole new aspect of life that I never thought about. You know, I was molested, I was abused, uh, I was an abuser, whatever the, whatever the thing may be that, that is your secret in your past. But add on top of that the level of being gay, the level of being trans, you know, your tranxiety, or yeah. gay-xiety, maybe we could say. Oh my God, I love. So, so you know, um, but that's the stuff that under, that's not even just your specific experience. There's that other layer of just like, I'm going to be seen by everyone as queer or I'm going to be seen you know and and for like trans people I'm going to be seen as a man it's like well you know my piece from the from the play yeah. you know I've been a man with men I've been a man with women I've been a woman with women I've been a woman with men I've been with straight men I've been with bisexual men I've been with gay men I've been with straight women I've been with lesbian women and I've been with uh, bisexual women and I've been with pre-operative post-operative and non-operative trans women but no trans men mm-hmm. thus far yeah. and, 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 and the joke is it's on my bucket list yes but, of course but you know so, so but I think all of us you know we're all like a myriad of things anyway so right. so there's not going to be one, one, one key solution you got to find somebody who's a therapist but therapy's half science and half creativity mm-hmm. you got to find the right person uh, and generally those are going to be people who've dealt with trans people before whether they're trans themselves or not, uh, you know, or gay, or, or whatever whatever the specifics may be. And I, I guess one thing I'd say is, like, I did a lecture last week in Antioch, and this one uh, man spoke up, spoke up and he said, you know, I have to tell you I'm a Christian, and I'm hearing all this stuff about intersexuality, about trans, and, and you know, the, the chart where you say, I'm, uh, what your gender expression, your gender identity, your sexual orientation. Uh, there's a whole list of them, and you, and you can, like, make a little graph that shows it. It's really fascinating. And he said, but my mind is so totally blown. He goes, because, you know, I, I, you know, being a Christian, I think certain ways about these things. And, I, you know, it was one of those great moments. Uh, I wish I could say I could prepare these moments, but it just came out. And I said, I said yeah, but it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. You're there for your client. It doesn't matter if I'm an atheist and, 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 you know, I think all of this is kind of mumbo-jumbo. It doesn't matter because when I'm in the room, I have to understand what your context is. It's not about me. And if it becomes about me, I'm a bad therapist. Mm-hmm. I have to understand what you think is God's role and, and all that. And I, I said to him, I said, you know, as far as my understanding is, 
Jesus was a compassionate person who wanted to help people. Mm -hmm. And that's what you want. And, you know, it was just one of those moments in the room where two people from completely opposite perspectives were able to agree on the middle ground that is, you know, psychotherapy and treatment. You know, you cannot impose your beliefs upon other people. I mean, I can say it here on this podcast with you. Probably, to be honest, if I was a practicing therapist right now, I wouldn't say it, you know, because I don't want people to misinterpret my own personal opinions. But when I'm in that room, it doesn't matter what I think. The only the only time I'm ever going to speak out against something is if it involves danger to the individual or another individual, mm-hmm. which you're obligated by law to do anyway, mm-hmm. you know, or, or if people are using aspects of their, whatever their belief system may be, to justify dangerous habits, drug addictions, or, or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was like a sort of a clarion moment for me. I was like, wow, it's like the fact that we could get there. I'm sure if we spoke in, in more depth about it, we'd find our disagreements and stuff, but I said, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. You can't be a judge when you're in that room. You're no. there to help them, and I can't either. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's not always easy. But also in our in our personal lives, you know, we can't. I can't judge where you come. You can't judge from where I come. Mm-hmm. You can be interested. We can express it. We can share. How do we get to the point where you're comfortable enough to be doing, you know, a, a pod broadcast that could potentially reach an audience across the world? Sure. You know what what a feeling that would be, and that shows me that you have confidence in yourself to be able to do this, mm-hmm. and that means that you're moving forward even. You know, we can't look at our own lives. I could say, oh, I'm stuck doing this, or, you know, I haven't right. done this. But this is what you're doing. You're doing this stuff. And that is, the, that to me, and I'll say this to myself, to be honest, you know, just do it. Right. You know, forget about the blowback. Forget about the putting your stuff out there, you know, in the world for anybody to hear. Because there's, there's horrible people out there. And that's the downside of the, of the yeah. Internet and all that. But... You don't really have to hear them because you're just there. It's a one way. In this case, it's a one way. Not that they couldn't reach out to you if it was something positive, but you don't have to put a comments column yeah. because you know you know you don't want to be trolled and well, stuff. I mean, thank you. That was cool. But I mean, to kind of end it off, you know, yeah. like I do feel <clears throat> some one of the beauty, the, one of the beautiful things about what I've been doing with this podcast is just. There's so much time where I, 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 I literally, I'm not just trying to paint a dramatic picture here. I'm sitting on my bed by myself, like staring at the wall, thinking about all these things. And maybe it's like a young, you know, haven't made it to that point in your life thing yet where you're just in, and having one of those existential moments. I wish I could tell you that it just had to do with age. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but, you know, I'm just, it, not even just a young, exi- just an existential moment where I just am thinking about all these things all the time and to the point where I start wanting to bang my head against the wall. Absolutely. And it's... My therapeutic advice is don't do that. <laughs> that's all. That's call, why... I, call me first. That is why I called you to, here today to tell me that. Um, but, you know, it, it's been really great to therapeutically talk with people about this stuff and and have those conversations recorded and, 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 or just even putting it out there and then if, I, if it catches my eye later in life or whatever, I can say, oh, yeah, like I dealt with it like that, you know. And what I want to say along those lines is to anyone else who's listening is that just, you know, put it, your shit out there. Put your stuff out there. People listen. And I think one of the major, major, major points of me creating this podcast and making it called Queer in Art is 
the importance of art as it relates to queer people's survival and growth and fight because we need to have more content to look at and to um, also to, um, you know, think about what's the frickin' word I'm looking for? Something where, you know, you can have a critical conversation about the queer experience because it's not it isn't one-sided and it's not one color and it's not black and white. And, and historically it's been repressed. Yes. So we have to put it out there because otherwise the, the mainstream normal convention just holds everything down. So it's, it's your responsibility as a queer person to get it out there. I, you know, I never want to put pressure on people to say you have to do it, but, but you know what, this is how people are going to find out about you and find out, about themselves and, and, and you know, I'm, I'm learning things just sitting here talking to you. Yeah. And I will learn things listening to your other podcasts. I also heard the ones you did with uh, Michael and all of them Thanks. back in the day. Yeah, they were great. And, you know, and, and I think that that's a great, you're making a great social statement here. You're saying that we, we have important voices. We are artists who can say things that nobody else can say. Mm-hmm. And we're proud of that. But we struggle because not only do we struggle with our own little security insecurities, but we struggle with the the wall of heteronormative nonsense that's out there. Yeah. Um. Boom, y'all. Okay, so I finish all my podcasts with a little like James Liptony questionnaire. Okay. Um. So don't think too hard about this. They are easy, like you could do one words or, you know, we might trail off a little bit. Let's see. I'm pulling out my phone. Here it is. Okay. Jesse Jacobson, what is your favorite word? Gosh. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's hard. Okay. Uh, laughter. Okay. Least favorite word? Uh, hatred. What inspires you most? Music. What's your favorite emotion? Uh, Got to be happiness. <laughs> what turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Being honest about, you know, in expression. Mm-hmm. What turns you off? Well, I would say it'd be simple to say being dishonest, but I also think just that uh, not refusing to put my art, my voice out there. Mm-hmm. Okay, if you could have dinner with any artist, living or dead, who would it be? Well, <laughs> I think it'd probably be John Lennon. Um, oh, yeah. There's so many that, that uh, but, that, yeah, I would say John Lennon, just because you know, for all his faults, he was an amazing mind and, and a person who influenced me as much as anybody. I'm not going to, I don't ask this ever, to everyone, but because we're talking about who's your favorite Beatle? Uh, yeah, but that's a really interesting, that's another <laughs> one. That's a tough one. I, you know, I, I love all of them. Um, I think when I was growing up, though, George, I don't think it was just because of the picture on Revolver, uh-huh. but, but, but I think that, that George, there was just something about his search and, and his, his, you know, uh, I, I'm not religious at all, but his, he, he was spiritual where, oh, yeah. as opposed to religious and, you know, he, he wrote great things like the Pope owns 51% of General Motors. So he wasn't a traditionalist in terms of his religion, and, and I respected his, you know, he just felt so heartfelt. But yeah. but probably I'd, 
I, either of those two, I love McCartney too, and I love Ringo, but, but I probably want to talk to Lennon, but George is probably my favorite growing up. I think I'm a George one too. Yeah, right. I think I'm a George. Um, I mean, all things must pass is like what I want to like be like my funeral song. Um, okay. What do you want to be remembered for? You know, being honest, uh, being myself, Mm -hmm. uh, sounds selfish, right? But, but I think that, yeah, I, I, if my art and my music comes across the way I know I'm capable of, and I don't short circuit it by buying into convention, which has been a struggle, you know, from the get-go, from when I played in bands, from when I did all this stuff, you know, listening to the producers and the record companies or whoever it might have been, it was like, shut those voices out. You can take in so much, they have a few good ideas, they do. But after that, it's got to be you. So if it's not totally me, then I don't like it as much anyway. Great answer. Um, Okay, what is your favorite part about being queer? Um... It's expression. It, it's it's, you know, I just never felt right, as you know, living as a male. It just from, I, my mother wrote a letter to my father when I was two and a half, and and I and I happened to find it after he died. Just it was literally the first thing I pulled out of this giant pile, and and she said, oh, you know, we're trying to diaper change Jesse and you know he's he's resisting it and doing all this kind of stuff so I said to him well um, you know cowgirls don't pee in their pants and I said uh, sorry cowboys don't pee in their pants Mm -hmm. Uh, and I said I'm not a cowboy I'm a cowgirl and I can pee in my pants if I want to so that was a smoking gun that I never knew existed at two and a half I said that and yeah so so I knew then you know, I, I knew, and, and I would have said six or seven otherwise. Uh-huh. But, yeah, just, just having to, being authentic. It's so hard, but it's so worth it. Yeah. Wow. <clears throat> so what is queer? You know, that, that, that question is, is one that I consider often because, do, you know, I've joined this group called Queerwise. Did, I didn't necessarily ever identify as queer, but, but I, I do like it as an umbrella term. And I love, you know, reclaiming words and, yeah. and the usage of it. And I grew up hearing, you know, queer is a $3 bill or a $2 bill, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Of course, there were $2 bills, so how queer was it? <laughs> uh, maybe those are queer. Yeah. I, have, I have a couple at home. Yeah. Um, but I, I think um, it, it, it can mean a lot of things, and I don't want to limit what it means <clears throat> to me, but I think it does embrace anything that's not, you know, heteronormative. That's not. I mean, it can be cisgender, but it can also not be cisgender. I think. I think it's just the, the, an open term, that if we try to define too much, just like any other term, it's going to restrict people. Whereas, since I don't know exactly what it means for me, that's good, because mm-hmm. I fit in. If they if they said here's the actual definition and I didn't quite fit in that a hundred percent I'd be kind of pissed. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's what it. So it means to me an umbrella where all differently gendered or different sexual orientations all these people can fit in together, but it's not going to be exclusive. I mean, yes, you have your weekend warriors and we can have our issues about that, but I'd rather be welcoming you know, as long as they're not doing any damage, then say you can't be queer because of this. Mm-hmm. So I don't get to own it. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, I didn't create it, so of course I don't. But but I'm living it, so whatever it means, I want it to be something that could mean a lot of things to a lot of people in a good way, Yeah, positive way. 
Well, Jesse, I thank you so much for, you know, coming and talking with me for this amount of time about all these really important things that I'm so glad we got to have this time to talk and kind of get to know each other even better. And I hope to continue working with you on these projects. We have something together coming up that I want to tell the world about, but I'm waiting. So you will hear more from you soon. And um, I hope that, um, you know, anyone who might be struggling with... um, their mental health right now or, or feeling really down about life as a queer person or a queer artist can look at someone like you who's done so much work and, and has helped so many people and has put so much thought and, and energy and um, research and time into the care of this. So I want to thank you because... Um, but, but also... I've felt all those things they're feeling, and mm-hmm. I still do. Yeah, you know, I, I I've worked past it enough to the extent, uh, but but that's from years of therapy and stuff. So you know, those people go to the LGBT center. You know, that it's a, a sliding scale. You don't have to pay if you can't afford to pay. I think there's a one time, it used to be one time twenty dollar fee and stuff like that. And go get that help and go get talk to people who, who've been through these things themselves and, and can, can help you in that. And thank you so much for having me. It is its opportunity to get to know you better and also to be a part of what I think is a fantastic notion for a podcast because cool. there's plenty of podcasts out there, but I think this one could really help some people and that's, that feels good to me. Duh. Okay. Well, we're going to go off and hug. So thank you so much, Jesse. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Thank you so much, Jesse, for chatting with me for as long as you did about such important things within our community. And I hope that if you listen to this episode that you understand the power of expression, the importance of sharing and making your voice heard to the world because someone is listening and you never know it might help. It also might help you. So uh, if there's anything to take away from this episode in terms of mental health, I hope that that's a tool that someone can use to feel better today. Um, If you love this podcast or even like it or even tolerate it, please subscribe, please like, please rate and comment all that stuff. We're on iTunes, Podbean. You can also find the podcast on Instagram at Queer and Art. That's Q-U-E-E-R-A-N-D-A-R-T. If you have any questions or want to reach out to me, please email me at queerandart, how it's spelled, at gmail.com. I'm Frankie Craft. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook at Frankie Craft. Theme music by Joey Polari. This podcast is brought to you by Sammy Girl Productions. Thank you all so much for listening and have a good one. Bye.